1 Samuel and chapter 12. And Father, we just ask that tonight, once again, that you would just bless everyone that is here and um, the children as they're having their lessons, that you bless the middle schoolers and the high schoolers. And Lord, us here in the sanctuary, that uh, we would be attentive right now. And Lord, that we know that you desire to speak to us. And so, Father, may we make application. We know that this is more than just a history lesson, but it's a lesson uh, for us because these things were written for us, as Paul says, that we may learn and that we can make application. And, Lord, that we can see your goodness and your faithfulness. And that's our desire tonight is exactly that, is that we want to draw close to you and hear your voice speaking to us. And, Lord, as we read your word, we know that it's alive and powerful and it pierces our hearts, it brings conviction, it brings instruction, and Lord, that's what we desire tonight. So uh, may you do your work in this place as we are reading your word. Uh, teach us by your Holy Spirit, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. You remember in the New Testament when Paul the Apostle was writing to the Galatian churches, it was some of the first churches that would be established uh, as the gospel went from Jerusalem, then to Samaria, and then Judea, and then it went out to the outermost parts of the world. It began to reach the Gentiles. And the churches of Galatia were some of the first churches that Paul established on his missionary journeys. Paul the apostle, of course, was the apostle to the Gentiles. And so as he established those churches, he would bring the good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ has come and died for your sins. He is the Son of God who has provided forgiveness of sin as he went to Calvary's cross and was buried and rose again after three days, and he's alive. And so as he brought the good news of the gospel, it was those Gentile Christians that were receiving it, they were accepting it, they were calling out to God, they were coming in faith uh, to the gospel, that is the message, coming to faith in Jesus Christ and who he was and what he had done for them. And they just began in this wonderful relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ in being born again by the Spirit of God. And so it was a beautiful movement of the Spirit of God in those churches. Well, soon Paul would leave and he would go to some of the other areas of the known empire. And, and it would be the Judaizers, that's what they were called, or the legalists that would come in behind Paul's ministry he would come to those Christians there in Galatia and they would say to those Christians, well, that's all fine and dandy. That Paul the Apostle has come along and said that just receive Jesus, come in faith, and, and you've received salvation. And it was something that Paul was, was preaching, that we are saved by faith alone, that we're not saved by putting ourselves under the law because the law cannot save us. And so it was the Judaizers, the legalists, that were saying, no, Paul is wrong. It isn't faith alone, but you have to be circumcised and you have to keep the law of God. So when Paul wrote a letter to those Galatian Christians, he would say, I marvel that you so quickly move away from the gospel, the good news, to another which is not the gospel, which is not the truth. And Paul would very carefully once again establish them in truth, establishing them in the fact that they are saved by faith and that the law cannot save them and that the reason for the law was to show us that we break the law, that we're all lawbreakers. And it was to be a schoolmaster or a tutor to drive us to the Savior Jesus Christ, that we might receive salvation. He is the author of eternal life. He is our hope. He's the one who has provided forgiveness of sin. He has done that work. And so we come in faith and trust in him. And so, once again, they were established in that truth. But the interesting thing was that Paul said something that we need to remember, and I think that that's one of the themes that we're going to see here in our text tonight. As we begin reading about Saul, as we begin to see that Saul began in the Spirit. He was anointed king. He was anointed to be the one that would rule over Israel. You see, Paul had said to those Galatian Christians, what has begun in the Spirit... Are you going to now try to perfect in the flesh? And so here is Saul that as he was selected by God, as the nation came to Samuel and said, 
We want to be like the other nations. We want to have a king that rules over us. And even though Samuel was very grieved by that and he prayed to the Lord, the Lord was grieved even more. It was the Lord that said that, Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me and they've been in rebellion against me ever since I brought them out of Egypt and into the wilderness and then into the promised land. And so if they want a king, the Lord said, then they're going to get a king and permit this to be so. So it was Saul that was anointed the first king of Israel. And last week, as we went over chapter 11, really it was the only real highlight that we see in Saul's ministry and as he was king. It was Saul that gotten word that this individual that was named Nahash, he was an Ammonite, had gone to this city, Jabesh Gilead. And the city that was on the east side of the Jordan River, he surrounded that city, Nahash did. He said, I'm going to come in and we're going to attack you. And Jabesh Gilead, we know, had already had a very tragic history to where they were almost wiped out. So the men of the city came out to Nahash and said, you know what, don't attack us. Let's make a covenant, a peace treaty. And it was Nahash that said, we'll make a peace treaty with you, but we're going to pluck out your right eyes and we're going to make you slaves. And so the word went out throughout the different tribes of Israel and throughout the land of Israel that here was this encampment against Jabesh Gilead by Nahash. And Saul heard about it, and the Spirit of God came upon him, and he assembled an army. As we saw last week, then he went and he defeated Nahash and the Ammonites, uh, a sound victory, defeated them, uh, and utterly just, you know, destroyed them, is what we saw, to where they were on the run, and not two of them were together. And then also we saw that Saul also would give some very wise advice. He, he shows real wisdom, that is, as some of the men, after that victory that they had against Nahash, the Ammonite, that they said, hey, those men that showed disrespect to you, Saul, when you were anointed king, let's bring them here. Because those men were saying, who is Saul that he can lead us? And who's Saul that he can, you know, save us and, and do the, the ministry of a king? And that's what they were saying. And they were showing disrespect to Saul, and it was the men that when they saw that Saul had lead, led them to victory against Nahash, let's bring those guys that were bad-mouthing you, and let's put them to death. But it was Saul very calmly that he said, no, no one's going to die today, for the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. So he was giving glory to the Lord. He was giving credit to the Lord, which should happen whenever that we see the Lord working in a very powerful way in our own lives. When we experience victory in our lives, we need to give the glory to God. And so we have seen that this beautiful work of the Spirit in Saul so far, but what we're going to see that what has begun in the Spirit, he's going to try to perfect now in the flesh. And as we continue on, we're going to start to see the downfall of Saul because we're going to see that he becomes prideful. He wants to take the credit for himself. He's going to be full of excuses. And we're going to see that he is going to end up having the kingdom taken away from him. And it's going to be given to another, a man after God's own heart. And, of course, that would be David. And so here are some very important lessons for you and for me tonight as we go through this text. Now, Samuel, who was the last of the judges, the leader of Israel before they asked for a king, is also the spiritual leader, continues to be so in the land. He's been speaking the word of the Lord. He is a priest. He's been operating as a prophet and as a priest. And as we saw as we opened up chapter 12 and finished from uh, in uh, chapter 12 at verse 5, it was Samuel that came to the people. He's addressing the people for the very last time corporately. And he comes to them and he says, when I was young, I began to minister to you. And now I'm old. And so I have ministered to you with great integrity and, and godliness and with gentleness. And I have dealt with you honestly. I haven't taken from you. And the people said, amen. You know, we're witness to that. And so we know that Samuel was one that throughout his life, he was one that just continued walking in the Spirit of God. And so we can learn from him, this godly man that just would be sensitive to the leading of the Lord, was one that would teach the people the truth of the Lord, and was yielded to him. And so as he's ministering to the people, addressing the people, he says that God is my witness, and you're my witness, that I have treated you right. I haven't taken from you. 
and I've ministered to you in great integrity and in great honesty. But now as we pick up our text at verse 6, we see he's going to address the people as he continues and, and give a rebuke for them asking for a king. We read in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 6, Samuel said to the people, it, it is the Lord who raised up Moses and Aaron and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may reason with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord which he did to you and your fathers. When Jacob had gone out into Egypt and your fathers cried out to the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. Verse 9, And when they forgot the Lord their God, he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazar, into the hand of the Philistines, into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And then they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and the Asterisks, but now deliver us from the hand of our enemies, and we will serve you. And the Lord sent uh, Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, uh, Bedan, Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you dwelt in safety. And then verse 12 tells us, When you saw that Nahash king of the Ammonites came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your God. And so Samuel begins to remind them of God's working. And God's working was of faithfulness and goodness and freeing you, bringing you out of Egypt. And through the rest of the Old Testament here, as we see that um, the Lord would address his people whenever they were in rebellion, he would start by reminding them that I brought you out of Egypt. Don't you remember? Don't you remember how I freed you from the bondage and the slavery of Egypt, brought you into the wilderness, into this land? I have been faithful to you. I made a covenant with you, and I have been faithful to keep that covenant. And, and so as they came into the land, as we saw shortly after Joshua had passed away, bringing them victory after they came into the promised land and began to drive out the different Canaanite tribes, then we saw that they began to serve those Baals and Asterisks. And just as God said would happen, they would find themselves in bondage. So the Lord, as, as he promised and as he made that covenant with them, he said that's what's going to take place. And then as the children of Israel rebelled against the Lord, they would cry out to the Lord. And the Lord in his faithfulness and goodness would raise up as we saw in the book of, of Judges there. And he makes mention of it that he would raise up to free you from Sisera as he rose up Barak, you remember, in Judges chapter 4. And it was uh, Deborah as well. He would raise up, as we know, uh, to free them from the Mennonites, uh, Gideon, as Gideon would be called by God and his 300 men to free the children of Israel from the 135,000 Mennonites that would come against them. But it was a miracle of God. God is the one that gave them victory. And we know that he would raise up Jephthah, Judges chapter 11, against the Ammonites. So the children of Israel had already defeated the Ammonites. And then Samuel says, and when Nahash the Ammonite once again came against you guys, what did you do? You wanted a king. You were asking for a man. You stopped trusting in the Lord. And all throughout your history, there's been this, this, this reoccurrence and, and this pattern of rebellion and not trusting me. And you've never really given me a chance. And when you did, you've seen that I've been faithful and I've delivered you and I've been true to my word. And one of the things that I pray for us that are here tonight, every single one of us, is that we would remember the goodness and the faithfulness of the Lord, that his word is true. And oftentimes what we will try to do is we turn to the, the things of the world, the, the ways of the world, or, or we go in other directions other than really looking to the Lord in helping us and delivering us and, and bringing victory to us as we trust in him and stand on his promises that are given to us. And so here is, is, is Samuel just addressing the people and, and, and saying, you were looking for the, a man, not the Lord, to really reign over you. In verse 13, Now therefore, here is the king whom you have chosen and whom you have desired, and take note, the Lord has set a king over you. 
If you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and do not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then both you and the king who reigns over you will continue following the Lord your God. However, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. The Lord, um, as he, he wants the children of Israel uh, to understand, just because you have a king, it does not nullify the covenant that I've made with you, that I made with you back at Mount Sinai. You are still to walk in obedience. You're still to keep my commandments. And if you do that, then I'm going to bless you. And you're going to see that I'm going to be faithful to you. And you're going to see that I'm going to deliver you from your enemies. But if you don't, then you're going to see that it's going to be big trouble. And as you read now, as they enter into the days of the kings, that of course after Saul would be David, and then after David would be Solomon, and then after Solomon would be his son Rehoboam, and then during the time of Rehoboam, the nation split in two. The ten northern tribes, the house of Israel, and then the southern part of the nation, that is the second part being the house of Judah down south, with Judah in the tribe of Benjamin. And we know that the tribe of, of, or the house of Judah, the nation of Judah, you would have the descendants of David that were ruling, that were the kings. And as you read First and Second Kings, and you read First and Second Chronicles, all about those kings, because the house of Israel up north, all the kings were very wicked kings. Uh, they were all bad kings. But the house of Judah was a little different. Some of the kings were good. Those who followed after the Lord, those who trusted in the Lord, and the Lord would do wonderful things for them. But then you also had some bad kings. And when they had those bad kings that introduced the nation into idol worship, then it was a problem. It was big problems. They found themselves being defeated and in bondage and, and the difficulties that would happen to them. And so all this history that you read about as you go through those books of the Bible one of the things that we see that's interesting as we've been talking about what has begun in the spirit don't try to perfect in the flesh and I can't help but think about second chronicles chapter 16 there is Asa this is after the reign of David and Solomon and, and Rehoboam but we know that Asa was a good king and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and it tells us that Ethiopia had this million man army that came against the house of Judah and and so here is Ethiopia marching to the north with this million-man army. Now, in those days, that was a huge army. So it was Asa, the king of Judah, that cried out to the Lord. And he said, I can't defeat this army, and Lord, please help us and fight for us. And he trusted in the Lord. And so the Lord brought a great victory uh, for Judah as they would defeat Ethiopia and that million-man army. And the prophet would then come to Asa and said, Asa, you did good in asking and trusting in the Lord. And if you continue to do that, then God's going to bless you. But if you forsake the Lord, he's going to forsake you. And for 35 years, we know uh, that it tells us in Second Chronicles chapter 16 that Asa trusted the Lord. But then something happened. In the 36th year of his reign, what happened was the house of Israel up north began to build their troops along the borders of Judah and, and was going to attack Judah and begin to lay siege on some of the cities. And so Asa was very concerned about that. Now, the house of, Ju of Israel up north coming down to evade Judah, they didn't have a million-man army. They weren't nearly as powerful as Ethiopia. And so what did Asa do? What Asa did at that time is he came up with a plan. He said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a pact with the king of Syria, which is north of Israel, and I'm going to have the king of Syria, I'm going to pay him off, I'm going to pay tribute to him, and I'm going to have the king of Syria have his troops go down into Israel so those troops that are down in Judah now have to leave and go up there and fight the battle against Syria. So the king of Syria agreed to that as he was paid off. And so it was a good plan militarily. Strategically, it was brilliant. But he didn't seek the Lord. He was doing it out of his own intellect. He was doing it out of his own understanding, coming up with that plan. He made his own plans. He did not seek the Lord. And it was the prophet that came to Asa at that time and said, Asa, why didn't you seek the Lord? 
You sought the Lord when Ethiopia was coming against you, but yet you didn't seek the Lord when Israel was mounting their troops against you. You made your own plans. You went your own way. You did it in your own understanding. And it was Asa that became very angry at that prophet and threw him in prison. But that prophet said something that is very important for us to remember. And it's one of those verses that I have underlined in my Bible. He said that the Lord, his eyes go to and fro across the whole earth, looking to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are perfect or that is loyal towards him. And may we understand and remember this, that the Lord sees you and he sees me. And he knows the battles that loom against us. And at times, those, those battles or those difficulties or the circumstances that we face, they seem so big and they're overwhelming. And the Lord desires for us to just seek him and look to him. Yes, he's given us a brain. Yes, yes we can think. And, and yes, we can come up with plans. But you see, we need to make sure that in every of our lives that we're yielded to the Lord and we're given it to the Lord. And that, that sometimes there are circumstances that we face, we think, okay, Lord, I got this one. I don't really need you on this one. I got it all planned out and mapped out. And we need to be careful that in every circumstance, in every day of our lives, that we're giving it to Him. Because the Lord wants to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we think or ask. And so Asa ended trying to do perfection out of the flesh rather than just continuing in the spirit. And so here is he, he, Samuel, continues to address the nation. He says in verse 16, Now therefore stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is today not the wheat harvest? I will call to the Lord, and he will send thunder and rain that you may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, in asking a king for yourselves. So Samuel called to the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. So here, to confirm the words that Samuel was speaking, that they truly came from the Lord, this thunderstorm comes. It comes at the wheat harvest, which is not a good time for it to happen. And it, it comes in early summer when it's usually the dry season. And, and so the people knew that this was from God. And why did God do this? Well, verse 17 tells us, because the wickedness that you've done in asking for a king. Now, we can read that and we think, well, what was so bad about that? And we've discussed this in our previous study, but they really weren't trusting God. They really didn't want God to rule over them. They wanted to be like the other nations. And what they were doing is really they were showing disrespect to God. There was no reverence to God. There wasn't the fear of the Lord. Hey, we want a man to take care of things and to take care of us. We want to be like the other nations. And as we have discussed, it was God's desire that he would rule over them. And just as he had helped them when they cried out when it was the Canaanites that had them in bondage and the Midianites later on and then it was the Ammonites earlier that had them in bondage that it was the Lord that brought victory and now they're looking to a man to bring them victory we want to be like the other nations you know as Christians we are called to be a light to this world we are called the light of the world and we are to be a witness to this world. And one of the things I do not understand is when in the church at large, and there can be sometimes a mentality of, you know, with some that how much of the world can we look like and still be a Christian? And I think that we need to be careful in that. And so that's why sometimes you have, you know, things like pub theology and, and all these other things that take place and and as Christians, what we need to do is we need to say, you know what, it's not how much of the world can I look like or be involved in and still be a Christian, but Lord, how close can I get to you? And Lord, to know you and to honor you. And everything that we do or participate in or whatever it might be, that Lord, does it honor you? Lord, can you look at this thing and say, it is good, it's really good. Can we be ones that we can, in integrity, say that this is something that would please the Lord? 
Is it going to stumble other brothers and sisters in the Lord? All those things that, that we could spend the rest of the night talking about. But the thing that I'm trying to, to point, make tonight is we should never, as a Christian, have the mindset of how much of the world can I look like or be involved in or be a part of. We're in the world, but we're not to be of the world. We're not to have a love for the world. And we're not to have the mindset of how much of the world can I have in me or get close to and still be a Christian, but Lord, how close can I get to you so I can be a light to the world? There's a difference, isn't there? The world out there, there's not hope. And people are in darkness and they're confused and they're trying to get out of situations. But sometimes the Christians are saying, hey, this would be cool, let's go hang out here, let's go do this. And I just hope and pray that we are ones that we can give them real light and truth and hope and that we would minister in that way. And so here was this, the God's people saying, we want to be like the other nations rather than being a witness to the other nations. And the other nations would see how God was blessing them and providing for them and protecting them. And it would be a witness to them. So the response of the people was one of great fear. And in verse 19, And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins the evil of asking a king for ourselves. So the people you know, asked Samuel, Pray for us for forgiveness for our hastiness in asking for a king. And in verse 20, Then Samuel said to the people, Do not fear. You have done all this wickedness, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart, and do not turn aside, for then you would go after empty things which cannot profit or deliver, for they are nothing. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. Isn't that amazing? I mean, the Lord brings strong rebuke to them, but he says this. He doesn't just leave them there. Samuel says, follow after the Lord, serve him with your heart, and know this, that it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. The Lord wasn't saying, oh, I'm so disgusted with you guys, and I'm through with you, and forget it, you're on your own now that you asked for a king. But the Lord reassures them that he was going to be faithful even though they weren't faithful, that he was not going to forsake them. And it isn't it wonderful for you and for me to know that Jesus declared that I will never leave you or forsake you. And I am so thankful that in those times that, that we get off track or in the times of rebellion, that the Lord doesn't forget about us. And yes, he calls us to repentance. And yes, he calls us to turn back to him. But the, the amazing love, steadfast love of God and his grace and his mercy, he says, it pleased me to make you my people. And so he goes on, verse 23, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord and cease to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. Samuel says something that's very convicting to me, very sobering to me as a dad and as a pastor. He says, for, you know, Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord and cease to pray for you. They're saying, Samuel, pray for us. And he says, of course I'm going to pray for you. It would be sin if I didn't pray for you. He considered it a sin not to pray for the people that he was ministering to. And I hope that is a, a conviction for, for us as parents, grandparents, that we would pray for our children and not cease praying for them, for our grandchildren, that we would pray for those that we know and love that are linked to us in our lives. For me as a pastor, this is very convicting, that, that it reminds me how important it is that I need to be praying for you, that I need to be praying for the people that are in this fellowship, and that's very important. And notice in verse 23, it says, not only praying for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. And that, are, that is one of my major responsibilities and what I've called to do as a shepherd of this church is to pray for you and to teach you God's word, to love you with the love of Christ. It would be in Acts chapter 6, you recall that there was a problem with the widows and they, some of the widows weren't being served 
in a way that they should have. And so the apostles appointed the first deacons there in Acts chapter 6. And the deacons, those servants, were, were ordained so that they could take care of feeding the widows and take care of the tables. And the deacons, as you look at their qualifications, deacons were called in the church to take care of the practical needs of the church. And it was the apostles that, it wasn't that they weren't servants, it wasn't that they weren't willing to do that, but they said, listen, we are going to anoint these deacons, the giftings that they have, and, and the calling of God in their lives, so they can take care of this, so we can be given over to what? To prayer and to teaching. And you see, that's why I'm so thankful for the people that are, that are serving in this church. I'm so grateful for you. Because it gives me the opportunity to do what God has called me to do, and that is be in prayer and to be in preparation for teaching. And to be able to do that to where I can come and use the gift and the, do the calling that God has given to me. So it's important that we, all of us as Christians, that, that we be praying for one another and that we be praying for the people that are linked to us in our lives. And so verse 24, Only fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all of your heart, for consider what great things He has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. So he says, fear the Lord. That means have reverence for the Lord. Serve Him in truth with all of your heart. Any of us that are serving the Lord in any capacity, do it with all of your heart. Do it with your heart. Don't do it out of, you know... Because you feel like, you know, you got pressured into it or, you know, you do it out of drudgery or whatever it is. I do it because, Lord, because out of love for you, I do it with my heart to serve you in truth with all of my heart. And remember the great things that the Lord has done for you and for me. May we never forget how the Lord has brought us out of Egypt, that is, out of the world, the bondage of the world and the slavery of the world as we are forgiven now. And how He has saved us. And we have hope. And we're born again by the Spirit of God and, and how the Lord desires to bless us. And we can think about all the blessings that the Lord has given to us. I bet every single one of us can, can remember the goodness and the faithfulness of the Lord in the past and, and always remember those things. And He's going to continue to be good and faithful to you in the future. So chapter 13, Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the mountains of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent away, every man to his, his tent. And so now we see that a couple years have passed by. And this is the first really regular army for Israel, the first Israeli defense forces. Uh, first professional army before they kind of gathered when they were threatened and the and the trumpets were blown but here we see that this is an army that he's gathered and we're introduced now to jonathan now jonathan is the son of saul and jonathan his name means gift of god and he's going to be mentioned now throughout the rest of first samuel till we get to second samuel but jonathan He's a great military man, a, a great warrior, and also we're going to see that he's a loyal friend of David. And so here is Saul. He has 2,000 men with him. Here is Jonathan. He has 1,000 men with him. In verse 3, And Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. Now all Israel heard it and said that Saul had attacked the garrison of the Philistines, and that Israel had also become an abomination to the Philistines. And the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. Now notice here, again, since chapter 11... When Paul seemed humble before the Lord, when the Spirit of God was upon Saul, he was used to free them from Nahash the Ammonite. A few years have passed by. Here is Jonathan now. And Jonathan, it says in verse 3, he attacked the garrison of the Philistines. And then Saul blew the trumpet. And now Israel heard that Saul had attacked. What was going on? Saul's taking the credit. Jonathan's the one that attacked the garrison of the Philistines, but it is Saul that's blowing his own trumpet. And all of a sudden the news is going throughout the land that it is Saul that attacked 
the garrisons of the Philistines. He defeated them. And what we're going to see from this point on is Saul's going to be a man that becomes prideful. All the people of Israel had rallied around him. The men said, yes, he has saved us, Israel, and, and let's put to death the guys that didn't show him respect. So Saul's got confidence now, and over the years, obviously, we see here that he became very prideful because now he's blowing his own trumpet. He's taking the credit that somebody else did, and we're going to see that he's going to continue to do that as we move through these chapters here. Saul's going to be one that he wants to look good before the people. And he's going to want to take the credit. And he's going to set up a monument for himself, we're going to see in chapter 15. And so here is Saul with this pride. Now we know that Proverbs tells us that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. And we need to be careful of pride because it's such a terrible, terrible sin. It's what caused Lucifer to fall and become Satan. Because he became prideful. He wanted to be like God. He wanted to, to be worshipped. He wanted to take the glory. He wanted to sit on the throne of God. And unfortunately, in my years of ministry, I have seen men that were used of God, that were used in powerful ways, and they had you know, ministries that you looked at, and God was working, and their ministries you know, were growing. And then all of a sudden, they began to kind of pat themselves on the back a little bit. And they began to blow the trumpet for themselves, and they became a little prideful. And unfortunately, I've known guys that I've ministered alongside of and with that they became prideful, and they're not in ministry anymore. Because God's word is true. That pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. And God, according to the book of Isaiah, will not share his glory with anyone. And so we need to always be humble before the Lord. And I know that it's something that, that I want to do daily. Lord, please search me and try me. If there's any pride, any haughtiness that is in me, Lord, Lord, bring it to my attention and help me to repent of it. Because it is something that so very easily any of us, and me included, that we can become haughty and prideful. And none of us have any reason to boast in what God is doing in us and through us. Because He gets the glory. He's doing the work. I'm just an instrument that God is using in the calling that He's given to me. And whatever He's doing with you and in the ministry that He's given to you, none of us have any reason to be prideful. And I know that when somebody does become prideful, that there's going to be a fall. And it's going to be messy. And so we always want to keep our hearts in check. And here is Saul. He's blowing the trumpet for himself. He's going to take the credit from the Lord, blowing his own trumpet. Look at me. I did it when it was his son that actually did the fighting. And so verse 7, the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots. That's probably a misprint over, you know, the translations. The Hebrew word for 30,000 and 3,000 chariots are very similar. So it fits better. Most scholars believe it should read 3,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people as the sand, which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth Haven. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, and the people hid in caves and thickets and rocks and holes and in pits. And some of the Hebrews crossed over to Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. And so we see that here is the Philistines. They mount this, this massive military you know, buildup against Israel. And the people become frightened. And, and there in verse 6 it says they were hiding in caves and rocks and holes and pits. Does that remind you of anything? It, doesn't it remind you of what happened when the Mennonites gathered and, and with their camels against the children of Israel there in Judges chapter 6? And, and it was Gideon and the men of Israel that were hiding in what? Caves. And here they're doing the same thing. Some of them crossed the, the Jordan River there on the east side and they're trembling. Sometimes we can become afraid when the enemy attacks. When the enemy comes against us. And the enemy will do that. 
But throughout the scriptures, we're told that we don't need to be afraid of the enemy, Satan. He's been defeated. We know that he has been stripped of, as we know from Colossians chapter 2, as Jesus' death on the cross, stripped them of powers and principalities, made a public spectacle of them, is what Paul writes to the Colossian believers. And we know that Satan is powerful. We know that he is a deceiver. We know that he's going to, to war against us. We're to put on the whole armor of God. We know that we're not to be ignorant of Satan's devices, as Second Corinthians uh, tells us. But here's the thing, that he cannot have direct authority over you. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And that's why the Lord continually tells us, don't be afraid. But I know at times we do. And men of faith, as we look at the scriptures, they were afraid. Abraham was told not to be afraid. David was told not to be afraid. We know that even Paul the Apostle was told not to be afraid. Now, why did God tell them not to be afraid? Because they were afraid. And sometimes we become afraid. But the Lord says to you and to me, I haven't given you a spirit of fear, but of power and love and sound mind. And greater is the Lord that is in us than he that is out there in the world. And you put on the whole armor of God, and our weapons are what? Our weapons are prayer and the word of God. And when the enemy sees you, that you are continuing in the word of God, and you're trusting in God, and you're on your knees praying to the Lord, he's the one that begins to tremble. A man or woman that is submitted to him, and loyal to the Lord, and a man or woman of prayer, and so here is, is the enemy gathering against them in verse 8. Then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. And so remember chapter 10, verse 8, that Samuel told him, wait seven days, and he would offer sacrifice before they went to battle. They needed to be spiritually prepared. The people are starting to scatter. You know, they're scared. They're hiding in caves. The Philistines are preparing for war, this massive buildup. Everything seems so urgent. So what does Saul do? He does what we have a tendency to do if we're not careful, and that is verse 10. It happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came, or let me back up verse 9. So Saul said, bring a burnt offering and peace offering here to me, and he offered the burnt offering. Now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. So here is all this pressure. The enemy's is building their troops. The people are scattered, some of them going on the east side of the Jordan River. And so Samuel says, I'll do the offerings. I'll do the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. Now, initially, we might read this and we think, well, what was so bad about that? The problem was he was being dis disobedient because he was not to offer those, those sacrifices. Only the priests were allowed to do that. So he is willfully being disobedient because he feels that he needs to take things into his own you know, hands. He needs to do this. He needs to, to offer the sacrifice. And, and he's not taking God seriously in doing this. It's very similar to what, as we discussed, the, the office of the king was not the same as the office of the priest. And the duties of the king was not to do the duties of the priest. And it was Uzziah, the king of Judah, as again we read in Second Chronicles, that he was one, that he was a good king, did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He started out so well, and he brought great economic prosperity to Judah, military victory. He, he was a great, great leader, but at the end of his life, he ruled for 55 years. What did he do? Uzziah goes into the temple, and he begins to burn incense to the Lord. And the priest came in and said, you're a king, you're not supposed to do that. And Uzziah, you know, got angry at the priest. And while he was getting angry, God struck him with leprosy, and he ended up dying of that disease, a tragic end to his life. What has begun in the spirit, he tried to perfect in the flesh. And here is Samuel, you know, with this urgency, I'm going to do it, and he's being disobedient. And that's why it was, you know, Samuel that said, why are you doing this? As he says in verse 11, what have you done? And Saul says, well, when I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed, that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, then I said, the Philistines will come down at me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. 
In verse 13, And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom for, you know, over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, that, of course, is David. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Then Samuel rose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people present with him, about 600 men. So he went from 2,000 to 600 men. He was compelled to go ahead and do this. I got impatient. And you see that what is Saul doing? We're going to see he's going to continue to do this when he's disobedient. He's making excuses. Well, the people are scattered. You didn't come and, and offer this. And I felt I had to do something. And he knew he wasn't supposed to do that. You know, we become so impatient sometimes as people. We live in an instant world, instant messaging, you know, instant whatever it is. We, we have benefits sometimes. It can be beneficial because of instant messaging or instant, you know, I want our Starbucks coffee now. I, you know, I don't want to wait for it. Instant, you know, food, we put it in the microwave, whatever it is. And that can be beneficial and helpful in the life that we live, but it's not always a good principle when it comes to spiritual life, because we want things to happen now, Lord, and I'm in this situation. Why aren't you working now? Rather than learning to wait on the Lord and to be patient. And especially when we're in difficulties and in trials. Sometimes we can become so impatient. And the scripture talks about in Romans 5 and then also in the book of James that when we are in tribulations or going through fiery trials, that there's a testing of our faith which produces patience to wait on the Lord for His promises to work, for Him to work, which produces character, godly character, which produces maturity, which produces hope, hope in Him. And hope does not disappoint. And what we need to do is we need to learn as Christians that to wait on the Lord in our lives. We want the Lord to work now. We, we want it now. And we can come impatient. So then we start to do things out of the flesh or to work in our own understanding. And we make excuses. Oh, Lord, but this was the circumstance. I had to do something. I had to make a plan. And the Lord is saying, why didn't you just wait for me? You know, even when it comes to spiritual growth, we, we become so impatient. And I hope that, that you would keep coming and learning and growing in God's Word and allow Him to do that work in your life. There's, there's not a shortcut to spiritual maturity. We try to do that. We use modern technology. There's got an interesting email, you know, this week, and, and some of the churches are getting into this new thing that's called Monvee, M-O-N-V-E-E. What it is is, you know, a spiritual assessment. You answer so many questions and then put it into the program. Essentially, the, the computer spits out, you know, why, what it is that's keeping you from spiritually growing, and here's a spiritual plan for you. Pam, takes five minutes. And I know those that are, that or perhaps doing this and promoting this or desiring to help people, I understand that, but do we really need computers to replace the role of the Holy Spirit? Do we really need a, a program to replace just being steadfast in the Word of God and allowing the Word of God to have its work in our lives? To replace just submitting to the Lord and saying, Lord, I trust in you that, that the work that you have begun in me, I have confidence that you're going to bring it to completion. That, Lord, you're going to work in me both the will and to do of your good pleasures. And it's day by day and morning by morning. And folks, there, there's no shortcuts. And, and it is steadfast, continuing to be 
Lord, I'm going to look to your word and to your truth and grow in it. And I'm going to just yield to you in the work that you want to do in me and through me. And it's just growing in that way. But so oftentimes we want things to happen instantly and we want quick fixes and all of this. And I pray that we would be steadfast and just continuing in the word of God and allowing the Holy Spirit of God just to work in your life and just wait on him and look to him to guide you and direct you to work in your life. And so quickly as we finish, Saul, Jonathan, his son, and the people present with them remained at Gibeah at Benjamin, but the Philistines had camped at Michmash. Then raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned to the road of Oprah in the land of Shual. Another company turned to the road of Beth Horon. The other company turned to the road of border overlooks the valley of Zeboam towards the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found through all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords or spears. So there wasn't any blacksmith. The Philistines had a good plan. They said, we're not going to allow the Israelites to have any blacksmith, and they want anything done, they have to come to us. And so the Israelites, verse 20, would go to the Philistines to sharpen each man's plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his sickle. And the charge for sharpening was the pen for the plowshares and mattocks, the forks and the axes, and to set the points of the goads. So it came about on the day of the battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found with Saul and Jonathan, his son. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to pass of Michmash. You know, one of the things that the enemy will try to do, he'll try to take the weapons away from you. That is the weapon of the word of God. The weapon of prayer. Oh, I'm not going to be in prayer. I don't need to be in Bible study. I don't need to be having devotions. Watch out for that. Things look bad right now for the children of Israel, but we're going to see that God is going to work and God is going to be faithful. And he's going to work and he's going to be faithful to you. You just keep on. You just keep on doing those things of growing in the truth of God's word and in his love, yield it to him. And so, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for these important lessons given to us. And, Lord, I, I thank you that tonight that we can come. And, and, Lord, we see that Saul, who begun in the Spirit, now is trying to perfect in the flesh. And, Lord, I pray that for us as individuals, for this church corporately, that we would not follow that pattern. Lord, that we would be patient, we would yield to you, Lord, we would trust in you, and Lord, look to you every day of our lives. Father, I pray that if any of us here tonight, that maybe we've tried to do things in our own understanding, we're not really looking to you, maybe a certain circumstance that we're facing, or whatever it might be the case, that, Lord, that we tonight would say, Lord, I turn to you, and I want to look to your word and you working in my life to be patient and to hear that still small voice or the instructions from the word of God and not to move out of my own energies and my own might and my own understanding. Now, Father, as we just worship you now, I just pray that you would just speak to our hearts and that, Lord, it would be a time where we just be still before you and Lord, a time of just worshiping, a time of just talking to you, confessing, whatever it might be. But Lord, we give you this time. So bless your people. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.